So welcome, Amy. I'm really um, pleased to, to have you involved in uh, this Masterminds podcast with um, the topic today being mindfulness and um, just really looking forward to talking with you about mindfulness and flow and how you have been incorporating both um, into your work. I'm also interested in learning a bit um, about how you came to be interested in, in both mindfulness and flow. Um, so maybe maybe to begin, Amy, uh, for the listeners, if you would be happy to just provide a brief overview of uh, what it is you do and and incorporating in that how you came to be doing what you're doing. I know that it's um, it's quite a story. Um, so just just the highlights that you'd like to to share with us today. Well, I think relevant to the interests of your community, I offer mindfulness skills to athletes, coaches, parents children, teens, teachers, healthcare professionals, counselors, and anyone else who asks me. Um, and mindfulness, uh, as my friend George Mumford, who was the mindfulness mm. coach for the Lakers and the Bulls, says, mm. mindfulness makes us flow ready. It doesn't guarantee that we'll experience flow, but it does make us flow ready and it makes it more likely that we'll experience flow simply because we're able to deal with the distracting thoughts and feelings um, that kind of get in the way of the experience of flow. Mm. So that's the answer to the first part. I really like that mindfulness makes us flow ready. Yeah, I um along a similar line, I um when I'm talking about both concepts, I talk about mindfulness as being a pathway to flow, which is pretty similar idea, I guess. Yes, absolutely. And so I work with individuals, teens, groups, um, both in person and online um, Mm -hmm. in supporting them and experiencing flow in whatever domain they happen to be working, playing, performing in. And how I came to do this, uh, I think we'll go back to my childhood ever so briefly and go forward from there. So um, I was a a competitive gymnast as a child and competed through my sophomore year in college Mm -hmm. and um, then competed as a competitive cyclist after that and then um, went to medical school and actually first started teaching mindfulness, uh, went to study at UMass with John Kabat-Zinn and first started teaching mindfulness to patients in the hospital with chronic pain and chronic illness. Yeah. Then I became a parent and started teaching mindfulness to parents because uh, we uh, can definitely all use that in our daily interactions with people in our household. And then um, just one morning, I was sitting with my son, and he was very upset about something. And I said, would you like to do a feelings meditation and I wasn't really sure what I meant by that but started offering mindfulness to my own children Mm -hmm. and then to children in schools and community settings children and teens and then teaching other people to offer these skills to children and teens and then ultimately kind of returning after the experience of teaching to children and teens let me kind of refine and simplify Mm -hmm. Um, the mindfulness practices that I offer and then returning to combining that with my love of sports. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's great. And what interested you in mindfulness? Like you said, you went and and worked with uh, John Kabat-Zinn, and so obviously you you learned about mindfulness from the uh, the Western master of mindfulness. Um, what drew you to to mindfulness? Um, my sense is that, like, ultimately, it's a way for a relieving suffering and b. Um, enabling people to thrive or to find flow. So, you know, when I started with the patients in the hospital, that was much more about relieving suffering Mm -hmm. and working with the kids and the teens and the athletes and the coaches. That's much more about thriving and finding flow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so what's a typical workday look like for, for you? I know that you have, you do wear many hats. Um, Yes. Um, I was like, what is a typical work day? Um, I'll give you some of my hats and then the pieces kind of fit together uh, depending on the day. So um, in the morning, I often work with women who are stressed, depressed, anxious, experiencing PMS and menopause or um, chronic illness. Um, In the afternoon, I often work with their children who are stressed, depressed, anxious, have ADHD or anger management issues. And And then, can I just interrupt? Is that work, um, are they coming to see you as a physician? Yeah, so so the women are definitely coming to see me as a physician. The kids and teens are mostly coming to see me as a mindfulness coach. And I will put on my physician hat if I need to support them in that way, but it's really about life skills. Mm -hmm. And then I do um, speaking and teaching both in person and online, again, to individuals and to teams or groups. And um, up until recently, there was a chunk of writing, but at the moment, I'm not, I'm not engaged in writing a book. So there was also some time for that. Mm. And um, do you want to just tell us about the books that you've written and um, what led you to to writing those? Sure. So the first book, um, they all are called A Still Quiet Place. So if you're going to Google them, they all have that at the beginning of the title. The first book is really written for teachers, counselors, therapists, physicians, parents, coaches, anyone who wants to offer mindfulness to children and teens. The second book is um, a workbook for teens where the teens can work through those skills on their own. And there's both um, obviously things to read, there's exercises to engage with, and then downloadable audio that they can put on their phone so that they can have it before they take a test or before they do an audition or an athletic tryout. And then the last book is A Still Quiet Place for Athletes, which is written predominantly for athletes and coaches. But as we were talking about at the beginning, um, except for the chapter on or the section on training and competing at altitude, all those skills apply Mm -hmm. to really any endeavor that someone might participate in. Yeah, yeah, sure. And I really love that that title, that phrase, a still quiet place. Uh, do you want to tell us how you came up with that? Yeah, I mean, when you start teaching mindfulness to young children, um, the common definition 
for mindfulness from John Kabat-Zinn is paying attention on on purpose in the present moment, Mm non-judgmentally. And most of those words don't make sense to a five-year-old or an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old. And so Mm -hmm. I wanted them first to have an experience Mm -hmm. of awareness. And so the easiest way for them to be aware is to be aware of the breath. And between the in breath and the out breath, there's a pause or a still quiet place. And that from from having the experience of stillness and quietness inside your body, mind, and heart, then you can develop the capacity to watch your thoughts and your feelings and your physical sensations and your interactions. And Mm. so the still quiet place was actually a way for kids to, to like, feel in their bodies, minds, and hearts, this sense of awareness. Mm. And then what I would say is your, your still quiet place can, from your still quiet place, you can hold or observe all your thoughts and feelings. Um, and then you can respond rather than react to your circumstance. Mm. So my definition that I now use, not only for kids, but for everyone is mm-hmm. Mindfulness, paying attention here and now, so not having our attention in the past or in the future, with kindness and curiosity, which was my translation of non-judgmentally. Yes. Um, and then the important part for me, and the last part, which isn't really in John's initial definition, although it's definitely in his work, is so that we can choose our behavior. The whole reason we pay attention here and now with kindness and curiosity Mm. is so that we have all the information we need to choose how we respond in a given moment. Mm. Yeah, that that's um that's a really important point and um having uh, watched a few um interviews uh YouTube interviews with John Kabat-Zinn defining um mindfulness I like um how he's added to those uh, three components, the fourth one, so on purpose in the present moment, non-judgmental, and then um, he's added in as if your life depended on it, um, which really draws attention, I guess, to the potential power of, of, of mindfulness. And um, and then your, your last bit is similar but different uh, in terms of, what what is that last phrase that you you've added into your definition? So that we can choose our behavior. So that we can choose our behavior, rather than reacting. Yeah, that's right. Great. And if you tie that in with John's addition, right? Like it's our moment to moment choices that create our life. Um, and if we can make more wise and compassionate choices in the moment, like we're just we're not carrying as much baggage into the next moment. And so we're freer mm. in that next moment. Mm. And I know that you developed this um, for young people and, and you obviously work with young people and, and adults as well. Um, do you find the term a still quiet place resonates across um, different ages? Yes. And a lot, it's interesting, even a lot of adults who had tried mindfulness in the past, like I've had people say to me, oh, well, it wasn't till I found that sense of stillness and quietness inside of me that Mm -hmm. I really, like it really started to become useful. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So, yeah. And like I said, the more, the more I teach taught to children and teens, um, the more I use the same teaching with adults, just because children and te- and especially teens, like they won't, um, they won't let you get away with anything. <laughs> it's true. And we can, uh, speak um through our experiences as being parents in, in that regard as well um and I, and I, when we were chatting initially and and then earlier on in the interview you were talking about um doing a feelings exercise with your son um and i was just wondering how have have your own kids responded to um to mindfulness and how do you see them um making use of this skill It's interesting. I have one, um, my son, who kind of came out inherently mindful. It's just his his wiring. Mm. Um, And I think, you know, it comes up in dinner table conversations and how we discuss interactions with um, various teams that he's been on. Um, My daughter is just much more emotional and um, vibrant. And sometimes that works really well for her and other times not so well. Um, And she's gone through different phases with the practice. You know, I used to, we used to, um, when I tuck her in at night, I used to just do a practice with her. Then for a while she would listen to my CD. Then she kind of didn't want anything to do with it. Then she was teaching her cousin you know, like at a family reunion, the cousin was having a meltdown. She's like, let me show you this thing. Um, and in the last couple of years, for sure, she's really like come back to it on her own. She um, played elite level soccer and then chose to be a performing artist um, and not pursue the athlete path. And, you know, she, some of her professors start their, course, their class with it every time. Um, she has been a counselor at a retreat, a family retreat for mindfulness. Um, so she definitely at this point has her, has her own practice. And I, as a parent, I will say that part of the parenting practice is to offer it without forcing. And so like when they both had periods of time where they weren't so interested, it's like, this is for you. It's your choice. Kind of take it or leave it. Cause otherwise um, we're not being particularly mindful in offering yeah. mindfulness to them. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah. And um, what did first attract you to flow? Um, was it through your own sport experiences? Was it through reading about flow or some other pathway that you came to flow? Yeah, I think for me, I mean, I definitely had experiences of flow as a gymnast. I mean, I didn't know what it was called. I didn't know that it had, you know, in the research definition, nine specific components, but you have those, you have those moments where they're super hard to articulate, but it's like this, like, um, I did another podcast with a guy and he's like, what is your definition of flow? And I said, okay, well, there's a formal definition with nine components, but for me, I think when we feel it, it's like effortless, effortless joy and that doesn't mean there wasn't a lot of effort to get to that place of mastery 
but it's like those moments where mm. everything comes together and kind of the self, the thinking self disappears. Mm. Effortless joy. That That's nice. And do you um, find that in your work with the various um, individuals and, and populations that you work with that flow is, is a, a relevant concept to bring in and in what ways do you bring it into your work? Well, for sure with the athletes, um, they have a sense of it, whether they call it flow or being in the zone. Um, and you had mentioned that you're working with also a person who um, is a musician, right? And mm -hmm. there's that same sense of not only personally being in tune and on rhythm and connected, but then also if you're playing in a group, having that same sense. And I really do think that those same feelings are not as noticeable, but but are present in our families or in our corporate settings um, or with our colleagues. Um, so I think there are those moments that um, we don't always appreciate them, but they're, they're there in, in all domains of life. Hmm. And if you're um, working with an individual, say and and it might might be an athlete or a performer in, in some area um is there a particular way that you like to introduce um that performer to mindfulness and flow um is there an order in which you might work with these concepts or do you just integrate them as they come up just curious to hear how how it plays out in your own practice I think the answer is both and. So um, I do generally have a sequence that I will work off of, but then depending on the response and what the individual or the group tells me, you know, I could skip forward several topics because it's relevant to them in the moment mm -hmm. or, um, I might make up something new on the spot to serve them if they have a particular issue that they're addressing that's like not in my normal mm -hmm. teaching, but it's like, oh, this, you know, this might be helpful. So my general, I'll tell you my general order. Mm -hmm. um, my general order is um, having people rest in stillness and attend to the breath then developing the capacity to watch thoughts, especially kind of the negative or self-critical thoughts without necessarily believing them or taking them personally, and then supporting them in learning to befriend their feelings, which is learning to have your feelings, to know that you're feeling sad or angry or excited Mm -hmm. um, and even feel how those feelings show up in your body without those feelings having you and having you do something that might be a detriment to your performance. And then once we have all that information and we're also able to attend to our external environment, then that's where we're able to learn the skill of responding rather than reacting, whether it's a mistake on a math test or a mistake in a game, or a bad ref call, or a um, disappointing review from a boss, 
Mm-hmm. Um, we can, you know, we can allow our humanness and then we can choose how we want to move forward. And then the intricacies of how to move forward in a specific situation um, can kind of be teased out individually. Hmm. And what is involved in, what do you find effective in helping someone learn this skill of uh, choosing how to respond? Um, They've been able to access a still quiet place within themselves and then what is it that you're teaching them to do after that? Well, I actually have a favorite poem that I use to teach it, and maybe you can just find it and put it up under the podcast, but it's called An Autobiography in Five Short Chapters. Oh, yes. It's in the books, but it's like helping people become aware of their habitual behavior that like has them actually fall into a... um, a whole, a behavioral whole. Mm-hmm. And then in, you know, when we're together one-on-one or as a group, like having people slow down and really consider what their options are, what their other streets are. And then, you know, they go back into their lives and usually that the, the whole shows up again mm-hmm. and, and they've slowed down and they've had a chance to consider what their options are. And so then they can apply those choices in those moments. And Mm -hmm. sometimes, honestly, it takes a lot of repetition. I had one mom who said, um, like, I can't always find the different street, which is what it says in the poem. And I said to her, and I said to her, like, well, then at least like sit down on the sidewalk and don't like just keep walking and fall into this theoretical whole, like try something different. And often a really, really great option, like just one option for your listeners is humor. Like just do something different. Like if you're, you mentioned you have teenagers, so I'll use that. Like if you have a recurring argument with your teenagers, like it's just everybody's habit to kind of stake out their territory and say the same things and um, you know, you can just say something silly or funny or ridiculous. Yeah. And then the thing is, then it changes the whole dynamic because they can't do their usual behavior. <laughs> yes, I have found humor helps, definitely. It does help create a bit of a space. So I'm familiar with that autobiography in five chapters just as a visual. Um, it's often used as an act or acceptance and commitment therapy metaphor. Um but um, I'd be really interested in in taking a look at the the poem. Yeah. Um, I mean, and I could pull it up for you if people want to hear it. Like it would take me just a second. If it's close at hand. and um, Well, that's what the internet is for. So give me one second. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's fine. And um, yeah, because I think um, your listeners will have a better sense if they hear it. So here we go. Uh, I'm just making it bigger so that I can read. Okay, so this here's the poem. Autobiography in five short chapters. Chapter one, I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault, and it takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two, I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place. 
but it isn't my fault and it still takes a long time to get out. Chapter three, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit, but my eyes are open. I know where I am. It's my fault and I get out immediately. Chapter four, I walk down the same street. And I have to tell you, like when I teach this to fourth graders, like I had one boy just sigh in exasperation. He's like, really? The same street again? Chapter four, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter five, I walk down another street. So when you talk even to, you know, kids as young as even five and definitely by the age of eight, like they can, they can tell you their holes. They can tell you how they get there. Often at that age, it has to do with siblings. So we talk about pulling people into the hole, pushing other people into the hole. We talk about family holes, especially when I work with families, you know, and then it even just becomes a joke. Oh, we're in the hole. Like, does it, do yeah. we want to keep digging or can we find yeah. a ladder? And the yeah. same thing with athletic teams or business teams, yeah. like even just the concept of like, oh my gosh, here we go again, mm-hmm. can be really helpful. Yeah, I guess recognizing that that you are in this place and uh, bringing a level of acceptance to it um, in a mindful way, you know, accepting this is the reality and then recognizing that you can make choices from there and in a way that's going to be helpful or not helpful. Yes. And then for the ones that recur, if if someone's in a session or a class with me, we can really talk about, okay, what are your choices in that moment? What are your choices when um, your brother takes your tr- truck or mm-hmm. your um, or there's a ref's bad call or the boss says you need to do the project over again or you know redo a whole section? Like, what are your choices in the moment and which ones are skillful and which ones are likely to just dig you in deeper and mm. and are there particular mindfulness practices that you uh, like to use in these sort of scenarios that are about um, helping people with with difficulty in their life and then I guess part two would be mindfulness practices to help someone access flow. Yeah, I mean, it, to me, it's interesting because they're they're often the same because mm-hmm. um, the reason that we're not experiencing flow is because we're stuck in our negative habits of thinking and feeling. And so, I mean, if I only get to teach one mindfulness practice mm-hmm. to people um, just because... Um, intense feelings are probably the biggest barrier to flow. I teach an awareness or a befriending of feelings practice. Okay. That's interesting. And if you want, we can do it. Sure. Now, like if Why don't we do it now? I think that'd be a really great way to, to, um, to tie this up um, and um, lead towards um, a conclusion is to actually do a practice. Yeah. That'd be great. So um, your listeners have a choice. They can sit and simply be as they are. Or if they um, 
kind of want to raise the bar a little bit, they can maybe choose a moment from the week that had a little bit of intensity or difficulty to it. And um, see if you can bring that moment fully into your mind and heart and maybe the difficulty still continuing. And then simply um, taking a few moments to feel the breath in the belly. And you can feel the belly expand with the in-breath and the still quiet place between the in-breath and the out-breath and feel the belly release with the out-breath and the other still quiet place between the out-breath and the in-breath. And perhaps you can realize that this stillness is always with you and that from this stillness, you can simply become aware of either the feeling that's present in this moment or the feeling in the moment of difficulty and simply noticing what feeling is here now. And sometimes it can be helpful to name our feeling or feelings. And some feelings have ordinary names like angry, happy, excited, sad. And others have more unusual names like fiery or stormy or empty. So simply naming the feeling and then noticing where the feeling actually shows up in the body. So it might be a tightness at your temples or a warmth in your heart or butterflies in your belly. So just noticing where the feeling is in your body. And then noticing how the feeling actually feels. Is it big or small? Is it cool or warm? Is it smooth or jagged? Is it heavy or light? Just noticing how the feeling actually feels in the body. And then noticing or imagining if the feeling has a color or colors. And listening and imagining if the feeling has a sound or sounds. And it may and it may not. And then just take a few moments to simply be with your feeling. not trying to change it or fix it, just simply allowing it to be as it is. And then when you're ready, returning your attention to the breath, feeling the breath in the belly, And in your own time, taking three slow, deep breaths.
And when you're ready, you can open your eyes and expand the attention to include your surroundings. And I just want to say one note about the practice. So the intention of this practice is to be able to experience our intense feelings, to have our feelings without our feelings having us. So if I'm aware that I'm becoming or actually already angry, for example, I can be aware that I'm angry and then I have the information to say, oh, maybe I need to take a few deep breaths. Maybe if it's an option, I need to take a walk. If it's not an option, maybe I need to do something simple to reset so that I don't um, react and make things more difficult than they already are. Mm. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed um, doing that practice. And I think it's a really lovely way to access awareness and, um, and then to, to be bringing that idea of the still quiet place and of an accepting of it and, as you say, not letting it have you um, and then being able to, to act from there in the way that you would like to. Thanks so much for sharing that, that practice. Yeah, it's my favorite thing to share. So thanks for letting me. Oh no, yeah, I think uh, I love uh, I love doing practices, and and I find that um, that's the most powerful aspect. Obviously, to talk about it and educate is is important, and then to to get in there and and actually be with what's showing up um, and learn skillful ways of doing so is is great. Um, so thank you so much, Amy. It's it's been an absolute pleasure to to be able to speak with you and and to hear about your work. And um, yeah, it's it's always wonderful to hear about how other people are applying um, mindfulness and flow in in different ways, but in similar ways. And you know, here we are in Australia, and and you're in the US. What part of the US are you in? So um, I'm in California, just south of San Francisco. Lovely, yeah. And um, and so, yeah, we are in the Flow Center. We're uh, developing a, a global community and we really welcome you into that and, and look forward to, to having uh, you involved in the future um, with the work we're doing and, and, and perhaps um, us being able to, to be um, involved in some way in the work you're doing and, and spread this this passion that, that we share for flow. Uh, so thank you very much. I really appreciate it. I'm sure everyone that gets to listen to this will, will also gain a lot from it. Well, thank you so much for having me and it would be awesome to collaborate.